Section 17 of A Life's Morning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. A Life's Morning by George Gissing. Section 17, Chapter 12. The Final Interview. On six days of the week, Mrs. Hood, to do her justice, made no show of piety to the powers whose ordering of life her tongue incessantly accused. If her mode of sabbatical observance was bitter, the explanation was to be sought in the mere force of habit dating from childhood, and had indeed a pathetic significance to one sufficiently disengaged from the severe of her acerbity to be able to judge fairly such manifestations of character. A rigid veto upon all things secular, a preoccupied severity of visage, a way of speaking which suggested difficult tolerance of injury, an ostentation of discomfort in bodily inactivity, these were but traditions of happier times. To keep her Sunday thus was to remind herself of days when the outward functions of respectability did in truth correspond to self-respect. And it is probable that often enough, poor woman, the bitterness was not only on her face. As a young girl in her mother's home, she had learned that the Christian Sabbath was to be distinguished by absence of joy, and as she sat through these interminable afternoons on her lap a sour little book which she did not read, the easy chair abandoned for one which hurt her back, the very cat not allowed to enter the room lest it should gamble, here on the verge of years which touched the head with grey, her life must have seemed to her a weary pilgrimage to a goal of discontent how far away was girlish laughter how far the blossoming of hope which should attain no fruitage and alas how far the warm season of the heart the woman's heart that loved and trusted that joyed in a new-born babe and thought not of the day when the babe in growing to womanhood should have journeyed such lengths upon a road where the mother might not follow neither hood nor his daughter went to church the former generally spent the morning in his garret the latter helped herself against the depression which the consciousness of the day engendered by playing music which respect would have compelled her to refrain from had her mother been present the music was occasionally heard by an acquaintance who for some reason happened to be abroad in church time and mrs hood was duly informed of the sad things done in her absence but she had the good sense to forbid herself interference with emily's mode of spending the sunday she could not understand it but her husband's indifference to religion had taught her to endure and in truth her own zeal as i have said was not of active colour discussion on such subjects there had never been her daughter she had learnt to concede was strangely other than herself emily was old enough to have regard for her own hereafter breakfast on sunday was an hour later than on other days and was always a very silent meal on the day which we have now reached it was perhaps more silent than usual hood had a newspaper before him on the table his wife wore the wonted sabbath absentness suggestive of a fear lest she should be late for church emily made a show of eating but the same diminutive slice of bread and butter lasted her to the end of the meal she was suffering from a slight feverishness and her eyes unclosed throughout the night were heavy with a pressure which was not of conscious fatigue 
Having helped in clearing the table and ordering the kitchen, she was going upstairs when her mother spoke to her for the first time. "'I see you've still got your headache,' Mrs. Hood said, with plaintiveness which was not condolence. "'I shall go out a little before dinner-time,' was the reply. Her mother dismally admitted the wisdom of the proposal, and Emily went to her room. Before long, the bell of the Chapel of Ease opposite began its summoning, a single querulous bell jerked with irregular rapidity. The bells of Pendle Church sent forth a more kindly bidding, but their music was marred by the harsh clanging so near at hand. Emily heard and did not hear. When she had done housemaid's office in her room, she sat propping her hot brows, waiting for her mother's descent in readiness for church. At the sound of the opening and closing bedroom door, she rose and accompanied her mother to the parlour. Mrs. Hood was in her usual nervous hurry, giving a survey to each room before departure, uttering a hasty word or two, then away with constricted features. The girl ascended again, and, as soon as the chapel bell had ceased its last notes of ill-tempered iteration, began to attire herself hastily for walking. When ready, she unlocked a drawer and took from it an envelope of heavy contents which lay ready to her hand. Then she paused for a moment and listened. Above there was a light footfall, passing constantly hither and thither. Leaving the room with caution, she passed downstairs noiselessly, and quitted the house by the back door, whence by a circuit she gained the road. Her walk was toward the heath. As soon as she entered upon it, she proceeded rapidly, so rapidly indeed that before long she had to check herself and take breath. No sun shone, and the air was very still and warm. To her it seemed oppressive. Over Dunfield hung a vast pile of purple cloud, against which the wreaths of mill-smoke, slighter than on weekdays, lay with a dead whiteness. The heath was solitary. A rabbit now and then started from a brake, and here and there grazed sheep. Emily had her eyes upon the ground, save when she looked rapidly ahead to measure the upward distance she still had to toil over. On reaching the quarry, she stayed her feet. The speed at which she had come, and an agitation which was increasing, made breathing so difficult that she turned a few paces aside and sat down upon a rough block of stone, long since quarried and left unused. Just before her was a small patch of marshy ground, long grass growing about a little pool. A rook had alighted on the margin, and was pecking about. Presently it rode on its heavy wings. She watched it flap athwart the dun sky. Then her eye fell on a little yellow flower near her feet, a flower she did not know. She plucked and examined it, then let it drop carelessly from her hand. The air was growing brown, a storm threatened. She looked about her with a hasty fear, then resumed her walk to the upper part of the heath. Beaching the smooth sward, she made straight across it for Dagworthy's house. Crossing the garden, she was just at the front door when it was opened, and by Dagworthy himself. His eyes fell before her. "'Will you come this way?' he said indistinctly. He led into the large sitting-room, where he had previously entertained Emily and her father. As soon as he had closed the door, he took eager steps towards her. "'You have come,' he said. "'Something told me you would come this morning. I've watched at the window for you.' The assurance of victory had softened him. His voice was like that of one who greets a loving mistress. His eyes clung to her. 
I have come to bring you this Emily replied putting upon the table the heavy envelope it is the money we owe you Dagworthy laughed but his eyes were gathering trouble you owe me nothing he said affecting easiness How do you mean that Emily gave him a direct look her manner had now nothing of fear not even the diffidence with which she had formerly addressed him she spoke with a certain remoteness as if her business with him were formal the lines of her mouth were hard her heavy lids only half raised themselves i mean that you owe nothing of this kind he answered rather confusedly his confidence was less marked her look overcame his not ten pounds well you don't he added whose is this money it is my own i have earned it does your father know you are paying it he does not i was not likely to speak to him of what you told me there is the debt mr dagworthy we have paid it and now i will leave you he examined her even yet he could not be sure that he understood in admitting her he had taken it for granted that she could come with but one purpose it was but the confirmation of the certain hope in which he had lived through the night was the girl a simpleton had she got it into her head that repayment in this way discharged his hold upon her father it was possible women are so ludicrously ignorant of affairs he smiled though darkly why have you brought this money he asked she was already moving nearer to the door he put himself in her way what good do you imagine this is none perhaps i pay it because i wish to and is it your notion that this puts your father straight do you think this is a way out of his difficulty i have not thought that but it was only to restore the money that i came there was silence have you forgotten he asked half wonderingly half with quiet menace what i said to you yesterday you see my answer said emily pointing hastily to the table i owe you that but i can give you nothing more her voice quivered as she continued what you said to me yesterday was said without thought or only with evil thoughts since then you have had hours of reflection it is not in your power it would be in the power of no man who is not utterly base and wicked to repeat such words this morning mr dagworthy i believe in the affection you have professed for me feeling that you are incapable of dastardly cruelty i will not believe your tongue against yourself in a moment of self-forgetfulness you spoke words which you will regret through your life for they were inhuman they were spoken to a defenceless girl after hearing them i cannot beg your mercy for my father but you know that misfortune which strikes him falls also upon me you have done me the greatest wrong that man can do to woman you owe me what reparation is in your power she had not thought to speak thus since daylight dawned her heart had felt too numb too dead barely to tell him that she had no answer to his words was the purpose with which she had set out the moment prompted her utterance the words came without reflection it was a noble speech and nobly delivered the voice was uncertain at times but it betrayed no weakness of resolve no dread of what might follow the last sentences were spoken with a dignity which rebuked rather than supplicated dagworthy's head bowed as he listened he came nearer do you think me he asked under his breath a mere ignorant lout who has to be shamed before he knows what's manly and what isn't 
do you think because i'm a manufacturer and the son of one that i've no thought or feeling above my trade i know as well as you can tell me though you speak with words i couldn't command that i'm doing a mean and vile thing there hear me say it emily hood but it's not a cruel thing i want to compel you to do what in a few years you'll be glad of you want to accept love such as no other man can give you and with it the command of pretty well everything you can wish for i want to be a slave at your feet with no other work in life than finding out your desires and satisfying them you're not to be tempted with money and i don't try to but i value the money because it will give me power to show my love and mind what i say ask yourself if it isn't true if you hadn't been engaged already you'd have listened to me i feel that power in myself i know i should have made you care for me by loving you as desperately as i do i wouldn't have let you refuse me you hear emily 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 it does me good to call you by your name i haven't done so before today have i emily not a cruel thing because i offer you more than any man living can more of that for which you care most the life a highly educated woman can appreciate you can travel where you will you shall buy books and pictures and all else to your heart's content and after all you shall love me that's a bold word but i tell you i feel the power in me to win your love i'm not hateful to you even now you can't really despise me for you know that whatever i do is for no mean purpose there is no woman living like you and to make you my wife i am prepared to do anything however vile it seems some day you'll forgive it all because some day you'll love me it was speaking as he had never yet done he assumed that his end was won and something of the triumph of passion endued his words with a joyous fervor very possibly there was truth in much he said for he spoke with an intense conviction which fulfills prophecies but the only effect was to force emily back upon her cold defiance i am in your house mr dagworthy she said and you can compel me to hear whatever you choose to say but i have no other answer than that you know i wish to leave you his flushed eagerness could not at once adapt itself to another tone no you don't wish to leave me you want to see that i am a man of my word that i mean what i say and am not afraid to stick to it emily you don't leave me till you have promised to be my wife you're a noble girl you wouldn't be frightened into yielding and it isn't that way i want to have you you're more now in my eyes than ever it shall be love for love emily will you marry me what resources of passion the man was exhibiting by forethought he could have devised no word of these speeches which he uttered with such vigour it was not he who spoke but the very love god within him he asked the last question with a voice subdued in tenderness his eyes had a softer fire emily gave her answer i would not marry you though you stood to kill me if i refused no bravado no unmeasured vehemence of tone but spoken as it would have been had the very weapon of death gleamed in his hand he knew that this was final so you are willing that your father shall be put into the dock of the police court tomorrow morning if you can do that it must be so if i can you know very well i have the power to and you ought to know by now that i stick at nothing go home and think about it it is useless i have thought 
if you think still to make me yield by this fear it is better that you should act at once i will tell you if i were free if i had the power to give myself to you in marriage it would make your threat of no more avail i love my father to you i cannot say more than that but though i would give my life to save his from ruin i could not give my father would not wish me oh never my woman's honour you will find it hard to understand me for you seem not to know the meaning of such words she closed with stern bitterness compelled to it by the tone of his last bidding a glorious beauty flashed in her face alas wilfred athel would never know the pride of seeing thus the woman he knew so noble but wilfred was in her heart his soul allied itself with hers and gave her double strength dagworthy had wrought for her that which in the night's conflict she could not bring about by her own force knowing in the face of utter despair the whole depth of the love with which she held to her father she could yet speak his doom with calmness with clear intelligence that the sacrifice she was asked to make was disproportionate to the disaster threatened he answered with cold decision tis you who don't know me i've nothing more to say to you you are at liberty to go Tomorrow your father will be before the magistrates Emily moved to the door the sound of the words had blanched her lips She felt that if she would keep hold upon her bodily strength. She must breathe the outer air Look here. I say he exclaimed stepping to the table take the money. I've nothing to do with that She made a motion with her hand but hastened still and escaped once in the garden she all but ran thinking she heard his footsteps in pursuit and smitten with that sudden terror which comes sometimes when a danger is escaped but she had gained the heath and it was certain now that he had not tried to overtake her a glance back showed her that no one was in sight she walked rapidly on though her heart seemed about to burst walked without pausing till she had reached the quarry here she sat on the same stone as before she was in dread of fainting the anguish of her leaping blood was intolerable she had neither sight nor hearing but the crisis of suffering passed she let her head fall forward and buried it upon her lap perhaps for ten minutes she remained thus then a great crash from the near heavens caused her to look up it was raining had rained since she sat there though she had not known it in the little pool before her great drops splashed and made a miniature tempest the yellow flower she had plucked lay close by and was beaten by the rain it lightened vividly and there followed heavier thunder than before she wished to shed tears tears were choking her but would not rise and shed themselves she could only sob aloud hysterically the words father and wilfred broke from her lips several times was there red-hot metal poured upon her forehead it cost her a great effort to rise and walk homewards the rain streamed down but she could no longer hasten still she reached the house before her mother's return from church and she was glad of that end of section 17 chapter 12